Yeah, unfortunately, this is common. This is just a, another example of the failures of, of our system. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Last week, Nigeria was convulsed by a wave of anti-police rebellion. Organized under the slogan, End SARS, the name of a particularly violent police brigade, the movement jumped from self-defense during protests to mass blockades in the cities and airports to collective assaults on the country's prisons. At least 1,993 prisoners have been freed. Jail cycling occurs when someone is arrested for a minor infraction, jailed briefly, and released. Researchers from Harvard University found that jail cycling accounted for almost 60% of COVID-19 cases in Chicago. Each year, over 100,000 people cycle through Cook County Jail, which is one of the nation's largest jails. Throughout the U.S., over 10 million people are arrested and cycle through county jails each year. According to the researchers, the cycling of just over 2,000 people through Cook County Jail in March alone was linked to about 4,500 additional known COVID-19 cases in the state in mid-April. In other words, nearly 16% of all COVID cases in the state were linked to the jail. The study found that jail cycling disproportionately impacted Black communities, who undergo heavy policing, resulting in more arrests than in other communities. In Chicago, African Americans constitute 30% of the population, but 75% of those incarcerated at Cook County Jail. A new surge of COVID-19 is causing suffering within America's prisons. Prisoners across the country have reported that precautions against the disease have either been superficial or have never been implemented in many facilities. Now, for example, almost 40% of the prisoners in Elmira Correctional Facility in New York have tested positive for the disease this month. Please contact us if you or a loved one have been affected by COVID and would like to share your story. This week, we're airing two kites, the first from a woman advocating for her brother, Billy Allen, who is on death row here in Indiana, despite his fight to prove his innocence. We'll talk to Yvette more in the coming weeks, but in this conversation, she introduces us to her brother's case and talks more generally about death row's impending executions. We then follow with a piece recorded from the inside from Shaka Shakur. A former Indiana prisoner, Shaka was recently moved to Virginia, an example of interstate transfer, which is a problem you might recall from Malik Washington's recent interview. We've shared Shaka's story in a previous episode of KiteLine, 
along with some of his writings. In this episode, he shares his essay entitled The Concept and Practice of Dual Power, in which he shares his vision for a successful anti-prison movement. First, here's Yvette. For the last 23 years, um, my brother, Billy Allen, um, has been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for a crime that evidence can prove that he did not commit. Um, I know, you know, that any sister who loves their brother, as I love mine, will be quick to come to his defense, but I want people to know that my brother is truly innocent. Um, my brother, Billy Allen, was wrongfully convicted of the 1997 on robbery and murder of a bank security guard um, that took place in St. Louis, Missouri, despite no physical, forensic, or documentary evidence linking him to the crime, he was arrested and sentenced to death. You know, at the time of my brother's arrest, DNA, gasoline, fingerprints, and clothing were all collected and tested. Everything came back negative. However, my brother's attorney failed to present any evidence on his behalf that could have overturned his conviction. Well, he had an attorney who basically didn't care, um, so he didn't present he didn't present a piece of evidence. There was an alibi witness um, who said that he saw my brother, who placed my brother at a mall at the time of the crime that was miles away from the crime scene. Um, however, the alibi witness was never called to te- testify, so the jury never heard, you know, from my brother's alibi witness. Um, that despite having my brother having receipts to prove his whereabouts, his trial attorney never presented those receipts nor any other evidence supporting his claim of innocence. Again, there was testing done to my brother's clothing for traces of gasoline. Um, during the commission of the robbery, there was a van that um, had crashed and um, forensic expert testified the van had been soaked throughout before the actual um, crime had taken place. You know, they wanted people to know that that sort of evidence would have been on whoever committed the crime would have had traces of gasoline on them at the time of the crime. The Mm -hmm. co-defendant, his results came back positive, whereas my brothers never came back, all came back negative. Um, There was blood spatter that was found on the leather strap. Um, the, gover- te- the government tested my brother and the victim's DNA, the bank security guards, um, against the level strap, and all results came back um, negative. There were sor- several sources that um, claimed that my brother received medical attention due to injuries sustained in the getaway van. Witnesses testified that someone received injuries to their hand. However, there were no photos. There were never any medical records to prove any of this. They said that they had treated, I'm sorry, they had treated Mm -hmm. my brother for his injuries because of those, um, you know, to his hand. But there are no photos, no documents or anything to prove this. Whereas if you look at the co-defendant's injuries, um, and I have photos of those, um, if you look at his injuries, you can see that he was actually, you know, burned. Everything that they said happened, his his clothes came back with traces of gasoline. His head was bandaged. Um, several by other his, uh, you know, he had several other um, injuries that were 
um, treated as well. There was a co the co-defendant actually initially admitted that there was another person that was involved, but then later implicated my brother as being um, a part of the crime. There was an anonymous caller who would inform the FBI that he actually heard the co-defendant um, and someone else speaking about the crime days prior to the crime actually happening. Um, the most damaging evidence was really the confession of um, the supposed confession from police officers who said that my brother confessed to the crime. Um, again, despite there are no documents, there are no notes, there are no photos, there are no recordings, there are no anything to back those officers' claims. In fact, we have transcripts, trial transcripts that prove that the police officer said that my brother immediately asked for a an attorney. So we all know when you ask for an attorney, you, you know, evoke your right to remain silent. So you can't, they can't speak to you any longer. So when mm-hmm. did he confess? So we have four different times where they said that he wouldn't talk, he wouldn't talk, he wouldn't talk. Um, so when did the when did that happen? Since they claimed he immediately and these were his their words. They said that he immediately asked for attorney. So after at that point you can't talk to him. So when did he confess? So that was really damaging and um these particular officers right now, one of them is currently incarcerated for beating a suspect and one of them is also um, well, he, he was being investigated. He didn't get, he wasn't incarcerated for this particular incident, but he is on tape for trying to plant a gun on another suspect. He was trying to get somebody to testify against someone that he didn't know, and the guy refused to do so. He just, so ha- he was like, I'll lock you up. And I have the evidence of that. There's actual video. So what happened was he actually arrested the guy. He was going to plant the gun or whatever and take him to the station. The guy immediately took out his phone. They, you know, they cuffed him in the backseat. They took him his phone, and um, he started recording. And so they captured him saying that he, you know, he was going to plant his gun on him and things like that. So he's currently incarcerated. There's another officer who um, who's currently in trouble for fabricating evidence and um police reports and he was paying witnesses to testify against people that were innocent. So with all of this, how is it that all of of Billy's appeals have been exhausted and none of this has gotten into court? Yeah, unfortunately this is, this is common. Um, This is just another example of the failures of the, of our system. Um, it's It's not uncommon for just last week, I think there were three people that were exonerated after being incarcerated uh, for more than 25 years because of the same reason they're, you know, after appeal after appeal, they were shot down. They didn't give them a chance to present any evidence. Um, but they finally, mm-hmm. after so many years, um, you know, they um, they gave them an opportunity for, to present evidence. But, yeah, this is so common. Um, so the... The judges have just rejected his appeals oh, without without yeah. even letting him present evidence. Yeah, every time. Denied every time. Wow. Yeah. And they assume because he's so far along in the process, you know, um, because he is out of appeals at this point, 
people assume or the courts assume that he has received a fair trial because, you know, they allow so many appeals. When you go through so many, they assume that, you know, you've, you've received the best or a fair trial at this point. Um, but if you had nobody defending you in your initial trial, which the initial trial is the most important, that's the one where it's almost impossible, but it is possible to get it overturned. Mm-hmm. It's literally almost impossible um, to get it overturned, but it does happen. That's when when it, it, it counts the most. So if they don't hear it in the beginning or if they didn't present a certain, certain evidence, um, yeah, it, they don't really want to hear it after a certain point. Uh, and so what's going on now with the federal executions in Terre Haute? So, you know, for the first time since 2003, federal executions um, are again allowed to go forward um, by the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and in the span of eight weeks, um, this current administration has executed five men with two more scheduled in, um, this week, actually today and Thursday. So they just restarted that, and, you know, we're, we're told that there are several more um, coming up. Yeah, you mentioned that they're talking about executing 16 more people by November. Is that right? That's what we're told, yes. I, I keep hearing different numbers. I um, I heard a lot more, and then I heard 16. So we don't really know what's going to happen, but we do know that majority of the people that are on federal right now are out of appeal. So, yeah, anything can happen at this point. Can you talk about the, the problems with the, the process of the what, what they're doing right now? The process? Well, it's a problem for me. It's not a problem for them because it's actually they, they were litigating it in court about the the time frame of um, the set executions. They have been um, executing people, you know, in a short span of a time, um, you know, the least being 25 days, this a little under 60 days. Um, so legally, they are. They just found out because they haven't done it in so long. They have to go back in court to see, you know, what was what, so that legally they are allowed to actually do it. So, yeah, it's just a problem with me, but it, it is legally uh, illegal for them to do it. Okay. So there has been a lot of problems, though, within um, because there hasn't been an execution in some time. Like, one, the first guy who was executed, he was left on the gurney for four hours. One of the guys with a needle, supposedly, I don't know how true that is, with a needle inside him. The other guy... He drowned on the medication that they give them um, to put them to death. And there's been a lot of articles going around about that right now. So You you are organizing with families of many people who are, who are on death row and who are facing potential execution in the very near future. Could you yes. tell us about what you all are, are working on? So we're just working on, I mean, there's been a lot of silence around um, the federal um, death penalty. So we're just trying to bring awareness to, you know, not only my brother's wrongful conviction, but everybody's case on um, what, what's happening with the death penalty in general. Really unfortunate what's going on right now. And uh, we just, we, you know, it's really barbaric what they're doing. And uh, we just want to make sure that people are aware of what's going on because a lot of people aren't aware of what's going on.
And now we have Shaka Shakur reading his essay entitled The Concept and Practice of Dual Power. opportunity to reveal the movement. One concept of revolutionary dual power is the taking of political theory and ideology and applying it to concrete conditions. This is applicable to mass organizing work, prison solidarity work, etc. In this instance, I would like to talk about some of the responses and work being done as a result of this C-19 attack, this COVID-19 attack. Work that is being done by revolutionary, radical, militant, or progressive groups and organizations in various communities throughout the empire. When the C-19 attack hit everyone, hit everyone was fearful and nervous because we wasn't all that sure what it was. Some self-interest groups and media hyped, and media hyped and manipulated that fear. Or tried to some for self-serving interests, some for capitalist economic reasons, and some just out of ignorance. You see, when it comes to one another, it is easy to fear what you don't know. Or understand when you take the decades of social conditioning with movies like Mad Max, The Purge, Isaiah, then some of our first instinct is to fear your neighbor, hoard food, stockpile weapons, or go online and fan the flames of his fear. Then there are those like us, people who believe in and fight for, struggle for a better future, who fight for a more and just and humane world free of all the negative isms that destroy people and whole generation lives. Isms like racism, capitalism, colonialism, and imperialism that sucks the life out of us all. Sexism and homophobia that promotes and creates so much sexual and social violence in our various communities. Dual power is when you do not depend on the government to meet the needs of the people and community. Dual power is when we reveal parallel structures and infrastructures that serve the needs of the people, all people. In actuality, dual power functions as a parallel government that is empowering the people to do for themselves and utilizing their resources to meet the needs of the people and their community. We serve the people and their interests because their interest is our interest. We organize, network, and empower the people to take control and responsibility over their own destiny. How do we do that? In Indiana, groups and organizations like IDOC Watch, uh, New African Liberation Collective, New African Black Panther Party, various Black Lives Matter chapters, and too many others to name are in the community organizing food drives and setting up distribution networks for critical resources like clothes and medications, setting up taxi services for people who don't have transportation, coming to an understanding with street organizations as the New African Black Panther Party took the lead with, uh, with other organizations to implement security networks and patrols in our neighborhoods instead of relying on or having the state police and national guards doing it. Some collectors started community guards and distributed the food to people and families that needed it. All of this is being done freely. We don't care what so-called race you are, gender or not, you are, etc. We care about serving the people and setting the examples of socialism in theory and practice. In Indiana, we also took the lead along with many comrades in other states with calling for and demanding the release of prisoners who were either at risk or had a year or less left on their sentences, particularly political prisons. Prisoners' families contacted some of us. We also utilized various forms of social media to do what? To organize, to cultivate working relationships with all kinds of people, from 
various backgrounds and walks of life. What do we have in common? We cared about someone locked down in these modern-day concentration camps. We care about prisoners slash captives, and his, the state government is disregarding our lives and their lives. We networked and organized phone zaps to the various seats of power, calling for release of prisoners. People organized protests and rallies out in front of the jails and prisons while calling press conferences. In solidarity at at least three other prisoners, prisoners went on mass hunger strikes asking for basic treatment, humane treatment. For example, to be issued face masks, to have access to be tested, to not be punished by being placed in solitary for developing symptoms, going into churches and using the means for the people or distribution networks that all expose us to other people and have exposed people to our politics and what we are about. What we see developing on the ground in Indiana and behind enemy lines is a result of the work that groups and collectives like IDOC Watch New African Liberation Collective, Black Lives Matter, and Prison Lives Matters have been done for years in the state with boots on the ground. With this momentum, and now that more people are seeking to get involved, as that sleeping giant behind the prison walls continue to awake from its slumber, we have to seize the moment. The media wants to highlight all the little cute, feel-good social networking being done online with the viral videos, mass social interactions, TikTok videos, and the like, and all that has its place. But again, we have a vision of a new society. Again, we believe in the radical transformation of society. A society where prisons and caging people are no longer necessary. Where our elders are not being wiped the f out because they have been placed in some so-called nursing home or institution with overworked and underpaid people who are dominated by a business or a corporation that is trying to profit. A world in a society that is no longer structured by classes where privileged folks get health care, get tested in the vaccine, and poor folks get death. But we get mass graves, unclaimed bodies are stacked in unrefrigerated U-Haul trucks on the side streets of Brooklyn, New York. This issue's real. And people are always talking about what can't happen in America. Well, it's happening. The lack of government resources distributed to various hospitals, poor communities, or rural areas is a clue to the future. Dual power allows us to prepare for such realities. It allows us to build the political, economical, and military structures and infrastructure we need to help facilitate the bringing into reality that vision. It gives us an opportunity to share, discuss, and break down our politics. Dual power helps us to overcome the superficialities that separate us as we learn, teach, and grow. Sometimes you have to break the rules in order to make new rules that work for everyone and is applied equally. We have teachers amongst us, nurses and medical people amongst us, engineers and people with other skills amongst us, plus a lot of people who have lost their jobs, people didn't or don't have savings, people who are hurting. They also need help. We have comrades purchasing land and properties for community centers. We, not, Why not other classes and opportunities where we can educate ourselves and educate our own? Why not community seizure of empty lots and plant community gardens for community consumption? A contradiction sharpened between us and the state, and they try to criminalize us, spread propaganda about us, isolate and neutralize us. It is these people, the masses that we serve and continue to serve, who will fight for us, protect us, and stand not only for us, but with us. This is why when we see workers at Amazon, Walmart, and other companies, businesses and institutions walk off the job and protest due to unsafe working conditions, we should be there to give support, to follow their lead, and demanding that these companies or government entities held accountable. We should also try to meet their needs where possible. In Indiana, we have a chance to really build and strengthen the movement. We also have a chance to force the state to make some concessions 
where the so-called criminal justice system is concerned. It's time for the state of Indiana to catch up with the 21st century, with how it treats its prisons, with how it sentences so-called citizens, with the lack of parole boards or chances for early release, with this new sentencing guidelines that has forced the rate of incarceration up another 35-plus percent. It's time for these people to be challenged, exposed, and held accountable. For those activist groups who have no history or experience in doing prison solidarity work, we should form prison solidarity committees within your own groups so that you can research and discuss amongst yourselves what it is exactly that you want to do. I would suggest that you try to locate and develop a working relationship with other groups who have already been doing some of this work, groups that have working relationships with the prisoners that they claim to represent. I would also suggest that you try to develop principal working relationships with a political prisoner, activist prisoner, or a progressive prison group. We can further build this movement by establishing points of unity, areas and issues we agree on and try to build a coalition. A coalition where we leave egos and petty differences at the door. Maybe we can develop a statewide steering committee, maybe a coalition of delegates, and try and build a solid movement and utilize this momentum. Remember, dual power helps us to build and put in place the basic infrastructure and pillars of the society we say we want to create. It also helps some of us to heal and recover from the damage caused by living under such a system, while we simultaneously work to change and or destroy some of the sick social relations and social intercourse with one another that we have been taught is natural, like racism, for example, and sexism, for example. All power to the people, free all political prisoners. My name is Shaka Shakur, 1996-207. My address is KMCC, P.O. Box 860, Oakwood, Virginia, 24631. You can email me on jpay.com. At, that, at my name and number, Shaka Shakur, 1996-207, just go to the state of Virginia. I'm originally from Indiana, forced out here to the state of Virginia, a Confederate state, because of the political organizing and mobilizing that we was doing inside the prisons, as well as on the outside of the wall. Power to the people. We'll have links to our episodes on Death Row, Shaka Shakur, and interstate transfers on our website, wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765 745-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. 
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.